you and I right this minute are living in what is almost certainly the loneliest era of American history. One half of Americans don't have four friends. Strong communities help people support one another, share their passions, and achieve big goals. Charles Vogel is an advisor, speaker, author of three books, including the international bestseller, The Art of Community. He works with Google in several capacities, including as a trusted thought leader for the Google School for Leaders, which develops over 20,000 Google managers. Also a founding member of the Google Vitality Lab, which works toward innovating healing strategies in our era. His work's used to advise and develop leadership programs worldwide within organizations ranging from Airbnb and LinkedIn to Amazon and the U.S. Army. His latest book, Building Brand Communities, was awarded an Axiom Business Gold Medal. His first book, The Art of Community, which is why we're talking to Charles today, won the Nautilus Silver Award for Business and Leadership. His work reflects a calling to help leadership create a culture of belonging in the most lonely era in organizational history. Drawing on 3,000 years of spiritual traditions, Charles teaches the wisdom and principles to build deep community, resilient relationships that ultimately foster innovation and integrity within organizations and around the globe. We spent a lot of time over the last few years talking about what it means to find meaning in work, what it means to be connected to the people around us, whether we're doing that virtually or we're doing that in the office. I want to talk to Charles because his book, The Art of Community, Seven Principles for Belonging, in my opinion, is of the utmost importance today if you are a leader concerned with creating an environment where your people feel connected. Here's Charles Vogel. Let's bring it in. I have in front of me uh, this book. It's pretty marked up, as you might imagine. Uh, the Art of Community, Seven Principles for Belonging. And I think maybe a good place to start would be, can you share with folks who maybe are not familiar with the book, uh, a little bit about yourself and what led you to writing The Art of Community. Yeah, happy to, Sam. So when I was a very young man, I did some fun, interesting things. Uh, right out of college, I was volunteering in a what we call a radical homelessness ministry in Southern California. And then subsequent to that, I uh, volunteered in the U.S. Peace Corps in Sub-Saharan Africa, where I was in Zambia during the raging AIDS epidemic and also some political instability. And then I came to the United States after that, and I started what turned out to be an independent film company. And we made films that primarily aired on PBS on what we call high social impact media. And I mention all that because those were all really, really, really challenging. Uh, working on health issues in Africa, uh, making films in New York City, and of course, addressing the homelessness issue in America. And what that long arc of experience taught me was how ineffective I could be by myself. In fact, I came back from the Peace Corps really burned out and cynical. And it was after that that some mentors started teaching me that I had a Superman strategy where I was trying to learn how to do everything well. Guess what? It was exhausting me and I was ineffective. And uh, sub subsequent to my film work, which did well around the world, um, I went to go study religion, philosophy, ethics, and business at Yale University in Connecticut. And when I was there, I had this really rare opportunity to study uh, spiritual traditions that have been bringing people together in really powerful ways for far more than a thousand years, right? In fact, you and I can leave right now and we can find descendants of traditions that are well over a thousand years that are still gathering. And many of these 
communities have stayed together through existentially threatening times, uh, you know, genocide and famine, political instability. So uh, at some point, I was a man in his early 40s, and I had moved to San Francisco area to support my wife's career. And I was at that point a guy who had a history of making films for PBS. I lived overseas, and I had a degree in religion and didn't know how I was going to contribute in any meaningful way. And I went to lunch with a guy named Kevin Lin, who at the time had fairly recently founded a company called Twitch. And over that lunch, he shared with me how uh, Twitch at the time had 50 million, five zero million um, users. And he was confident it was going to grow. And if you, anybody listening knows what Twitch is, you know he was right. But the interesting part of the conversation was Kevin said, what I really want to do better is connect the people who are already using our platform, largely gamers. And he just said that just because he was thinking out loud, like what he's working on, what the challenges were. Where in that moment, Sam, my head almost exploded because there were all these things I wanted to share with Kevin. And I had realized that I had just spent more than 10 years of my life before that conversation learning how to bring people together around shared values and purpose and how that's been done for over a thousand years. So I went home to write what I thought was going to be a 10-page white paper to give my friend Kevin and put me online and see if anybody wanted to read it. Turns out a lot more to say. And when I was done, it was book length, and now you have a copy of the book. So the book is really a compilation of my formal learnings about how communities have been staying together for generations and generations. Uh, my own experience, uh, trying to be effective in the world, bringing people together to handle really challenging problems. And then also speaking to people who are working in different contexts, we're bringing people together around shared purpose and values and where in ways there are trust are really going to help them and make a difference in the world. That's, it's a wild story. The, well, I guess, what do you, what do you find the reason is um, many organizations that you're working with, uh, what do you find that they're struggling with in this moment as they think about culture and defining community? I mean, the word community feels like it gets thrown around a lot uh, inside of uh, mm -hmm. companies to talk about their community of users, their community of their work workers. Mm -hmm. their, yeah. um, I guess, what what learnings have you had as you've um, explored and done your work uh, ac across all types of verticals? Right. So let me just say, Sam, that after long reflections, I've realized that the people who reach out to me, maybe like you, find the book, find there's something relevant, reach out to me, are people in leadership roles, who have organizations working on high stakes outcomes, which usually means uh, life and death is involved. And they're working in dynamic contexts. And that's important because that means that any manual that was written in January of 2020 is totally relevant. So typically, for example, people I talked to are working in healthcare where it's obvious people die if you get it wrong, uh, the military, uh, education, and um, high innovation tech um, that has high impact on our culture. And you say, what are, they what are they working with? Well, when they get it wrong, people die. It's as simple as that. And, th and that's actually very quantifiable. Uh, you know, Just for example, education, it's a sad fact, but it's true. Uh, the top universities in our country are spending millions and millions of dollars uh, to have students not hurt themselves uh, at better rates than they have been. I mean, so we're talking about um, ultimate challenges and keeping, keeping keeping people safe. And here's the reality. 
Sam, the research is overwhelming. Uh, you and I, right this minute, are living in what is almost certainly the loneliest era of American history. And I just recently looked at the new stats. I usually don't because the trends are clear and we don't need to keep revisiting them. According to the latest research, one half of Americans, Sam, don't have four friends. I don't mean don't have four friends at work. I don't mean four, don't have four friends in their neighborhood. They don't have four friends. We know that 15% of men in America, Sam, don't have any friends. And according to the research, only 13% uh, of Americans have 10 friends or more. Full stop. Well, Sam, if you're running an organization that's working anything high stakes, right, uh, do you want the people on your team to consider the people that are working with at work friends? And before you answer that, Sam, you know, when one of your kids goes to the emergency department, Sam, do you want that team to consider themselves friends with one another? Or do you want to do you want them to treat each other just professional niceties? Right. And I think we know the answer to that. Do you know the answer to that, Sam? Yeah, I think we'd want them to care a little bit about each other, right? Right. Exactly right. <laughs> yeah. So what are they worrying? What are leaders worrying about? They're they're worried about the fact that we have teams working together where we're hiring out of a context, we're training in a context where largely, unfortunately, Americans don't seem to have the skills to create the relationships they want and often we need to be effective in high-stakes situations. And here's the good news, though. Um, the research has also been done. My favorite researcher on this topic is Marissa King, who was at Yale, and she's just recently moved to Wharton. And she's written in her book, Social Chemistry, about how in a company context, having friends at work is seemingly the silver bullet to many, many, many challenges. Uh, engagement, absenteeism, turnover, accidents at work. And it's not rocket science, right? If you have a friend at work and you don't know whether you're going to do something that's going to burn down the building, you have someone to call who'll give you an answer who won't cut you down for it, right? We also know that when you develop those relationships at work, there's an informal communication network set up that plugs in when the formal system fails. And all of us who have done high-impact work that involved many people know you can't always depend on the formal system. Someone's on vacation, somebody's having a kid, somebody's mad at somebody, right? And then we can pick up the phone and just get an answer, get something happening. All of that happens when we have the relationships. Now, the contemporary context is we've moved into a video relationship, and that's not existentially bad. But here's what we do know. It takes five times the amount of relationship time to develop an equivalent relationship as it does in real life, in the physical world. And that's compounded by the fact that you and I, Sam, want to spend less time on video calls than we do sharing a cold beverage at a sunset, eating something crunchy, right? So we need more time to build those relationships. We want to spend less time doing it, and now we're farther apart and we're on video. Well, if we agree that what we need are teams that trust each other and consider each other friends to handle a dynamic situation high stakes, that means we have to invest as leaders to bring people together in contexts where they can develop those relationships. And what I'm finding when I talk to leaders, nonprofit, political, social, uh, commercial, is they don't even know what those contexts look like. And I'll give you an example, Sam. Um, my wife is an executive in a billion-dollar tech company here in the Bay Area. 
and she invited me to the Christmas party. And uh, sure enough, I put on uh, a shirt with a collar, which is unusual. And we went to San Francisco and found parking, Sam. And I went to this party. And sure enough, this billion-dollar tech company had rented out an entire club. And when I got inside, Sam, it was the exact party you think would be uh, designed by a 25-year-old with a Black American Express card. Uh, there were three open bars. There was all-you-can-eat hamburgers and French fries. And there was music so loud, I could talk to nobody. And so this was the only three hours of the year where I was going to meet my wife's colleagues that she spends on many days more time with them than she does with me. This was it. This was my one opportunity this year. And I could talk to nobody, Sam. Here's an example of a company that spent six digits to create an event where people came together and made it so nobody could connect. And they spent money doing it, Sam. And you say, well, Charles, maybe they didn't want people to connect. Maybe they just wanted to give people French fries, hamburgers, and loud music and drinks. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Well, Sam, they didn't send us a coupon, right? They didn't say go to in and out on us, right? They had me come to San Francisco and park and put on clothes that didn't embarrass myself. My point is I was literally standing in a place I was invited to spend time with people and couldn't connect with them at all. My point is that's how bad it is. And that is not a, uh, an unusual example. It's just one that I was physically at. So if we know that we're having our workers uh, not connecting because of the new context, and we want to invest in connecting them, we need to have some sophistication on how are we asking them to use their time and money to do that. You know, I'm going to ask you how we do it in a second, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, um, is probably not a simple answer, but the... You know, as I look at like the U.S. workforce, you're talking about environments, high stakes. Um, one in two U.S. workers today are a $400 parking ticket away from poverty. The volume of workers today that are on the edges, you know, I was talking to someone here in Newark the other day, works 81 hours a week. And when I hear work from home on television, I shake my head because it's like, that's a worker who works three, like which one of the three jobs that that person mm -hmm. I spoke with can they work from home at? Because it's not the Uber driving, yeah, yeah. it's not the bartender down the street, and it's not not working at Whole Foods. And right. when you talk about community, then you look at organizations who have beautiful mission statements and fuzzy core values mm -hmm. and community plugged into things on walls and words on walls. Um, what's the fix? Well, there is no easy fix, Sam. It took us more than one generation to get here, and it's not going to happen in the next six months. Right? We're not going to get out of this. And we are on purpose ignoring much bigger context that got us here. Like we haven't talked how we got here. How is it that our kids and we are living in such a lonely era? And quite frankly, the trends are getting worse, right? And there are several researchers following that. One of them is Robert Putnam out of Harvard. Um, and those forces that got us here are not going away. In fact, they're getting stronger. And I'm very, very pessimistic about, as you said, those half of American workers. And I think if we talk in five years, it'll be more than half of American workers. But here's what we can be uh, optimistic about. Uh, in a desert, Sam, it doesn't take a very big watering pot to bring up flowers. And as we've seen in California, one season of good rain changes the whole landscape of flowers, right? That doesn't mean it isn't a desert. That doesn't mean we don't want to change bigger forces that we're having to contend with. 
but we can notice with the people we care about, with the people we have access to, with the people who turn to us to make a difference, we can make a difference. And I think that one of the problems that we have this isolation is Americans are working so much and they're and we're struggling as a, as a country, as you mentioned. Uh, one parking ticket away from from poverty, not not having a hard time, not um, having to tighten their belts for a month, poverty, right? And there's no accident to that, right? There's a system that was designed that is manifesting that one out of two people participating in our economy aren't really making it, right? God forbid they get a diagnosis, parking ticket, at least that goes away, right? Makes me think about you know the the point you make in the book um, that I'd never thought about. And as I'm sure you agree, words matter. And you talked about the concept of a boundary in a community. And, you know, when I looked at it, the first thing that jumped to mind is the boundaries we create to keep certain groups away from opportunities. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know what you think about it, but that, that was one thing that jumped at me right away as I, I thought about uh, this point that we built it mm -hmm. this way, kind of what you're saying. Yeah, Sam, all ideas and all tools can be used um, to construct or destroy, right? And it's really about the values and intention of the user of that tool, which determines what's gonna come about using that tool, right? And since you mentioned boundaries, I'll go explain that to listeners. Uh, when you and I want to bring a group of people together in a more tight-knit way, in a ways that supports them, makes them healthier and safer and more resilient, right? We have to figure out, well, what's the boundary of the group people are bringing together? And the reason is, if we don't have a boundary, if we don't know who are those people and who are not those people, then we don't know who the people are we're working to bring together. Now, that can be a self-selected group. It could be people um, in my neighborhood who want to talk to me, right? But th that doesn't include, in my case, you know, people in Washington State who don't want to talk to me, right? There is some boundary. And self-selecting is different than not having a boundary, but we need to know uh, at what point are we not investing in certain people. Otherwise, we can't invest adequately to bring people together, right? It, it, it becomes a time thing, and then at some point it becomes a space thing, because I'm not going to rent out whole stadiums because I just want people to have a good time. And that's the boundary I'm talking about. And when boundaries are healthy, they're based on uh, shared value and shared purpose. And that's where the intention of the user comes. If if my intention is to be mean to certain people because I'm filled with hate, then guess what that boundary is going to look like? If my intention is to make sure people in my neighborhood in a really, really challenging time with floods and um, economic changes, people in my neighborhood are supported more by people who live near them, then that boundary is going to look very, very different. When you when you talk to leaders in organizations about um, about this topic, what mm -hmm. what change do you hope uh, and do you feel is realistic coming out of mm -hmm. um, reading any number of your books or or working mm -hmm. working with you? Well, there's a couple of them. The first one is my aspiration is that they see the importance of and then schedule time to allow the people they care about and depend on to create the relationships they want and need. Um, generally, uh, what's taught in leadership in a corporate setting in this country is how to maximally extract. And if I wanna do anything, 
I'm going to change schedules, I'm going to change uniforms, I'm going to change the furniture. The way I justify that is how I can extract more. Right. And we know why, because if we just adopt the values of sociopathic extractive system, then that's what our leadership is going to look like. On the other hand, Sam, if you uh, go to we'll just an emergency room with your sick child, my guess is you hope that not every choice made in the emergency room for the last 18 months was how they can extract more out of uh, healthcare workers who are leaving in record numbers, who we know are burned out and we know have mental health issues that are frightening. My guess is you want that, me that medical team to have management supporting them in their cooperation, in their health, in their um, rejuvenation in ways that are just about giving back, right? Making them powerful, right? So, do you have a question? All right. Oh. So what, if we want these teams to be resilient, we have to schedule time where they can have the kind of experiences that build a relationship. And for the purposes of teaching, I call those experiences campfire experiences. I only call them that, them that because uh, most of us have sat around a campfire and noticed that when we laughed, we felt more connected with the people who sat with us than before we got there. And the question is, well, what's going on there that we don't have to find logs every time we want to build friendships. And, and for the purposes of teaching, there are three criteria to campfire experience. One, is um, people uh, have the freedom to come and go, which is to say they're not coerced to be there. Uh, campfire experiences you've experienced, Cam, uh, Sam, nobody said, if you're not there, we know you're not a team player and there are going to be consequences. No, you were there because you wanted to sit around a campfire. Right. Two, uh, participants have an opportunity to have the conversation they want to have, possibly a vulnerable one which is to say they're not fulfilling an agenda, right? Or they're not going um, to have a report about that. And that's exactly what happened at the campfires you've sat at. And the last one is um, they need to believe, well, I'll say a different way. It needs to help them grow in some way they want to grow, right? And by the way, just making friends totally counts. So that's why that Christmas party was a total failure. I did want to go there, check. Um, but I couldn't actually have a conversation I wanted to have. And because I didn't ha couldn't have any conversation I wanted to have, spending three hours at Christmas party didn't help me be what I wanted to be or grow in any way I want to grow. So it was a total failure, no matter how much they spent on open bars. Right. right. Well... We have to have much, enough maturity and leadership to know that when we provide our teams these kind of contexts, whether they're literally sitting on a beach, whether they're walking in a park together, whether they're you know, sharing beverages somewhere, we have to know that those are the requisite experiences to create the connection and trust that we're going to need when things are less calm. And one of the ways we know that they're working is after a series, and it's always a series. So your friend, Sam, always were created after a series of these campfire-like experiences. Other things were going on, but the least we had to have is these. Um, I'll get back to train, train of thought. Oh, we know they're working because participants 
believe, and in this case, hopefully accurately, that other people understand them intellectually, understand them emotionally, and accept them for who they are right now. And they have to get enough data. We have to get enough data to get that perception. And if we're never given a context where we can get that perception, we're never going to feel that connection belonging. Right. And then that safety goes out the window. And then when things get hairy, the communication doesn't happen. And the risks don't happen that drive remarkable results. Have, you know, I, I just can't help but think about, you know, this time of year, there's a lot of graduations going on. Um, there's a lot of young people entering the workforce into mm -hmm. some of these environments that, you know, are going to throw the types of parties you're talking about. Right. <laughs> yeah. What can, what, what do you say to the 22 or 23 or 28 year old uh, entering the workforce um, into these types of environments? What can they do? Mm -hmm. That's great. First of all, to recognize that big events where you talk to lots of people very briefly, they can't, they can be fun. And there is some benefit to that, but that alone is not going to get you the kind of relationships you want. And quite frankly, you need to have a supportive community that makes you resilient as you grow in your career or just get by in America with the statistics you referenced, Sam, about how many, how many Americans are struggling. Uh, the experiences that are going to generate those relationships are intimate experiences. And they're going to have the characters that I just described in campfire experiences. So one thing you can do is when you go to a mixer event, be it an alumni event or just a professional social event, fine, meet people. It's called, we call it expansion. When you're just trying to meet more people, you're expanding your network. But no, that doesn't actually do very much. So that's when you have to take the initiative to invite people to an intimate experience, which could be sharing a cold beverage, walking in a park, breaking crusty bread next to the soup, um, sharing a hot bowl of noodles. And I'll tell you, if you look at my calendar, Sam, you'll see that twice a week, every week, forever, I've already scheduled time on Friday nights and Sunday evenings to have those kind of experiences. And it's coming next year, but here's what I do know. I'm not going to be in phone calls in those times. And the reason is I know the way I'm going to have the relationships that make my life rich is I'm going to invite people to fill those times with me. And here's what I invite people to, Sam. And this is the only thing I invite people to. Things I like to do. Because I know exactly, Sam, how much you want to join me doing things I don't want to do. I already know. So I only invite people to things I like to do. I like to walk around Berkeley, California. I live here. I've had friends walk with me in Berkeley, California. <laughs> it totally counts. <laughs> like that. Right? I like to go to the beach with my now five-year-old son. I have friends who go to the beach with me with my five-year-old son. <laughs> okay? And you know, you know what we're going to talk about when we're there? Whatever we want to talk about. Because I know that by creating that context where we can have the freedom of the conversation, something will emerge from that. Charles, it's been a pleasure uh, to have the conversation. I got one final question. I mean, so much about what you're talking about uh, has a direct implication, is part of the future of work conversation. What is your hope for the future of work? My hope is that there's a renaissance and the understanding that 
people in an organization are assets and not cost centers. And that we invest in our people consistent with their role as assets and trying to find how we can reduce their participation as cost centers so that we can then support people to grow in their fields to then do the innovation that we want them to do instead of having them struggle, right, to sustain themselves in the leanest possible environment. Charles, thanks for taking time. Thank you for inviting me. There's so much to take away from the conversation with Charles. I mean, obviously the, the point around living in the loneliest era in U.S. history, only 50% of Americans having four friends, 15% don't have any. It's sad. It's shocking. Also, the fact that it takes five times longer to build a relationship digitally than it does in person. These shares by Charles should only further motivate you if you're listening to consider the ways in which you're creating a workplace that empowers, that is human, that's inviting, which ultimately creates a community that your people want to come to. And you can't help but think that if you're creating a strong community, you're more than likely to create work product that's better for our market. In his book, Charles says this about community. He says, I define a community as a group of individuals who share a mutual concern for one another's welfare. He says it's distinct from a group whose members may share ideas, interests, proximity, or any number of things, but lack concern for one another. On the pod a few minutes ago, he said the goal of leadership, unfortunately, is focused all around how do we maximally extract and that it's a sociopathic system. This is not the way work has to be, but it is the way we have created work. It's up to all of us to recreate it. So thanks to Charles Vogel for taking time to join with us. Uh, the message, profound, timely, and of the utmost importance for the best leaders in our workforce. If you haven't already, head on over to your local bookstore and pick up The Art of Community, Seven Principles for Belonging. And when you're done with it, I'm more than confident you'll be just like me, uh, a book that's written up in more ways than one as I think about how I work every day towards creating a stronger, more connected, more inspired, more human community. Now, don't forget to subscribe to Bring It In so you never miss an episode. We've got some awesome guests lined up that you're not going to want to miss. Now, back to work. <laughs>